Hey, Mike here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to Dark Poutine early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. You're about to listen to a historical episode of Dark Poutine. After episode 149, you will find Scott is no longer with the show. In an effort to maintain continuity and offer listeners as many episodes as possible, we are leaving the episodes in which he co-hosted intact. Thank you. There were loons again. The loons were here. Welcome to Dark Poutine. I'm Mike Brown, creator and host. With me as usual is my good friend and co-host, Scott Hemingway, here in the sauna. Hello, all you sweaty, sweaty summertime listeners. Sweaty, sweaty summertime. Yeah, that'd be a great song. Sweaty, sweaty summertime listeners. Sweaty, sweaty. Oh, my. Mm. The views, information, and opinions expressed during the Dark Poutine podcast are solely those of the producer and do not necessarily represent those of Curious Cast, its affiliate Global News, nor their parent company, Chorus Entertainment. Dark Poutine is not for the faint of heart or squeamish. We strongly advise listener discretion. We're not experts on the topics we present, nor are we journalists. We're two ordinary Canadians chatting about crime in the dark side of history. Let's get to it. Put on your toque, grab yourself a double-double and a Nanaimo bar. It's time to scarf down some dark poutine. Chomp, chomp, chomp. You almost didn't chomp. I almost didn't chomp. It's it's later than usual. It's the heat chomped. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Listeners who feel they are in crisis can contact the Crisis Text Line in Canada by texting HOME to 686868. In the U.S. or the U.K., text 741741. The service will match you with a volunteer counsellor who is supervised by a licensed, trained mental health professional. Crisis Text Line is free 24-7 support for those in crisis. For more information, please go to crisistextline.ca in Canada or crisistextline.org globally. Let's get on with the show. In this episode, we'll look at the case of a young man who disappeared on Thanksgiving weekend in 2008 from a home he shared with two of his cousins in Edmonton, Alberta. Treated at first as a possible missing person, investigators now believe the man was a victim of homicide. It doesn't feel like it was uh, 12 years ago. It definitely was. You are listening to Dark Poutine episode 135, What Happened to Dylan Koshman? That's a great question. Do you know of this case? Yeah, I definitely, it's another one where I know the headlines of it. You know, Mm -hmm. I I know the bullet points of it. I don't know a lot of the uh, uh, details that go along with it. Well, there aren't a lot of details, which is is interesting. So I know it all. So it's why I struggle. Wow. It's why I struggle with doing these cases. Yeah, yeah. Um, we mentioned before that a lack of evidence after someone vanishes makes covering them really, really difficult. Yeah. Uh, our goal, especially when talking about an unsolved case, is to give as much information as we can. However, 
it's frustrating when there's so few facts available. Yeah. Yeah, because then what do you have to talk about? Exactly. Yeah. In Dylan's story, other factors complicate things, and we'll get into those. Mm. As this episode progresses, some of you may feel sure about who you think was involved in Dylan's disappearance and possible murder. But until Dylan turns up, maybe just fine, Mm -hmm. off doing something else, or authorities convict someone, Mm -hmm. this will remain a mystery. He's been missing for almost 12 years, as Scott mentioned, and his family, his sister and mom in particular, are still active in the search for Dylan Koshman. I got to speak to both of them, and we will have more from them as this episode progresses. They desperately want to find out what happened to him, and if possible, bring him home. I can't fathom ever just giving up on looking for a missing family member. Right. A lot of people who have a missing family member, I've heard reports of people saying to them, why don't you just, like, move on, move on, let let the police do their jobs, like all those kind of things. Put yourself in their shoes. Yeah, they, they clearly have never experienced anything even remotely close to I it. I haven't. <laughs> and I understand that I wouldn't... If Carol went missing tomorrow, I would be looking for her really... At least a few hours. No. <laughs> Much more than that. No, absolutely. At least a couple of days. <laughs> no. I yeah. I would not give up until I knew, I found out what yeah. had happened yeah. to her. Yeah. And for better or for worse, I mean, it's probably not good for someone's health to be concerned like that for the remainder <sighs> of their lives. But, but what are you going to do? The person you love is just vanished. The thought of, oh my God, are they suffering right now? Mm-hmm. That that want to just like, I need to go. Exactly. And try to do what I can right. to find the, uh, yeah, like it's just, it's, you know, and this, you hear people say that same thing when somebody, they, a family member has been murdered or, or lost right. and they just, you, I think it's time to move on. It's like, look, there's no template on how you should heal. Right. It takes what it takes. It takes what it takes. Um, You know, there's healthier ways and not healthier ways, Mm. but this isn't the kind of a trauma you can uh, prepare yourself for. Well, let's get into this one. Dylan Koshman grew up in Moose Jaw, Saskatchewan. And Moose Jaw is a small city of about 33,000, just a little bit south of Saskatoon. You like how I did that that song? Sonny James. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It's 225 kilometers away. As the Trans-Canada Highway Number 1 skirts the northeastern edge of the city, I blew through there as I was returning from my cross-country drive in 2018. I did as well once. Pretty much all I recall is seeing Mac the Moose <laughs> off the highway. <laughs> Do you know who Mac the Moose yeah, is? Yeah, yeah, I saw him too. Yeah. Mac, uh, for those who don't know, is a steel and concrete sculpture of a moose. And he sits on the grounds of Moose Jaw's Visitor Center at 450 Diefenbaker Drive. Mac's claim to fame is that he is the world's largest moose at 10.36 meters tall and weighs in at approximately 10 tons. I mean, I'd say it's worth the trip, but I won't. That's good that you said that. Yeah. But I, mean, I, I don't know anything else about moose jaw. And, and I'm not, I'm not, you know, knocking, yeah, not I'm not knocking the area. No, yeah. I'm just saying like a three day drive. Yeah. 
it might to see a, a tall moose. But might if you're not passing be. by, oh, look stop, for Mac, yeah. Mac the moose. Even stop in. Apparently, you know, yeah. you can go to the visitor center there and learn a little more. They give out free moose. I find that a lot of the names in the prairies are interesting. Moose jaw is very interesting. Red yeah. deer, red deer, medicine hat. Yeah, I don't know. Um, Man, I wonder where they came up with all these names. Is is it literally just here's a jar with names in it? No, like, I think they are actually indigenous of origin. It would perhaps. make some sense. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, it would. I, yeah, but like, what's so impressive about a moose jaw? Why would you need to name? You know, I spoke with Melanie Alex, Dylan's mom, about what Dylan was like when he was a youngster. Well, he was my. The middle child, he has two older siblings and two younger. And he was a, you know, the middle child, the clown, yeah. like to tease. And, oh, yeah. He was, you know, he was the one that would streak through the living room thinking it was funny where, you know, he he was just a clown and he he liked to make people laugh. Mm. And um, he, he was born with a hearing disability, mm-hmm. which we didn't realize until he started kindergarten. So, I mean, that explained a lot. I thought he was selective hearing because he was, you know, gone, gone. He had a lot of energy. He loved soccer. He loved fishing was a huge passion, camping. Um, he was just involved. He liked to keep busy. He was the one that got us going camping. You know, he was seven years old and he found a, a trailer online that would suit us. Wow. You know, that's how, when he wanted to do something, he did it. Is there any memory that stands out about Dylan that you find particularly comforts you? Um, probably our camping Yeah. as a young boy. I mean, like I said, he he got us out there. He was the one that we found this trailer, and he was the one that got Beaver Lumber to open up because we needed a certain size crew. <laughs> <laughs> wow. To put one of the benches back together before we could go camping, and he explained, he's only seven, eight. Lady, if you don't keep your stir open, we can't. We have to wait another day. <laughs> <laughs> That's he, great. You know, he yeah, he was you know, and he loved his family. He loved his siblings. You know, he he's seen that. He he loved kids. He loved children. He yeah. Newborns, which was weird to see as he, you know, even as a teenager, he would want to hold a newborn, which you don't see that too often. He was that kind of. No, a lot of, lot of love. Yeah. When I was that age, I was scared of them. I didn't want to hurt them. You well, know, here you and take you know it. <laughs> yeah. I have four sons and two of them are like that. And the other two, yeah, no, nope, I don't want to hold the baby kind of thing. But yeah. that's the kind of guy he was. He, you know, he was shy in some parts, but then the next time he was like terrorizing you and driving, like trying to bug you. So you'd chase them, you know? Mm, yeah. He'd be the one with the water gun squirting you and getting you going. But he, yeah, he was, I miss him so much. I bet. As many young folks from Canada's smaller towns do, Dylan Koshman wanted to broaden his horizons and get his adult life underway. Sure. His mom told me a little bit about that. To actually move away from our city was something big for him because, you know, he was turning 21 and he decided to move up to Edmonton and try to find his place, right? Mm -hmm. So it was... Out of the ordinary for him to leave or go too far, he was the one that liked family connection. He was the one that was trying to always go to every family thing he could, you know? Yeah. So that's one of the reasons I moved to BC from Nova Scotia when I was in my early 20s. So I really relate to that kind of thinking. I think a lot of people, a lot of small town uh, youth Mm -hmm. have that exact same desire. You grew up in New West, so you really didn't. 
I was yeah, I was always a, sh- a short bus or train ride away from the city, so yeah. there wasn't this urge to have to be near a big city because yeah. I was. Next, I asked Melanie about Dylan's first stop, Tara Koshman's place in Red Deer, his half sister. He went to Tara's place first. When he, on his way to Edmonton, yes, he stayed with Tara for a while. Were they close? Well, there was how many years between them? I think it was seven. Okay. So there was a, yeah, there was a, 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 a split there. So, I mean, when they were little, we did lots of stuff together. You know, we're, if we weren't at the animal park, we we're at the lake or, I mean, they loved playing and, and doing whatever. And Tara was the boss. Of course, she was the oldest. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, uh, but Dylan had kind of a way about him to, you know, he liked to challenge you too, right? He was like, uh, you know, you might want me to do this, but I'm going to do it this way too, right? So he had some good spirit. Oh, he had awesome spirit. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And athletic, like I said, he, after, you know, soccer and, and, uh, playing different sports, swimming and all this, he focused on his physique. He liked going to the gym, you know, mm-hmm. he was into, you know, being in shape. He was very good shape. You know, like he was just that kind of person. Like he, he looked like a pretty ripped guy in all the photos that I've seen of him, like pretty fit. Yeah. Yeah, he started probably going to the gym when he was 17, 18. So, I mean, you know, he, he liked to take care of himself that way. And he was good looking. He was very shy when it came to girls and stuff when he was young. Mm-hmm. And even even as older, he was more shy. But he, he, was, he was a good looking boy, you know. And Do you feel like his uh, hearing disability held him back at all in social situations? Oh, I know it has. I'm deaf. I'm yeah. deaf in my, in my left ear. He was mm-hmm. deaf in his right ear. So, I mean, I should have looked for this when I, you know, noticed that he never responded sometimes. But you're right, your good ear will take over and it's hard to tell someone is deaf mm-hmm. unless someone is, unless there's background music or something where you're, you can't hear. And yeah, maybe it did a little bit in the social setting, but not really. Like, he was a social guy. He he had a lot of group of friends. Yeah. You know, he, he was, he was, like, he had his elementary friends. He had his high school friends. He had his sports friends. You know, he had his party friends. He had a whole bunch of different groups of people. And, and, and yet I didn't even realize how, you know, how many different people he knew as, as when he went missing, when I started receiving all these, you know, yeah. messages and people, you know, so concerned and that knew him well, like this, this wasn't his, you know, he just wouldn't go missing. He didn't have mental health issues or, you know, depression or anything like that. Right. Right. There was no, there was no signs. You know, like I said, he was a healthy, ambitious, fun kid. And yeah. he was the one that, you know, really promoted staying in touch with his family, even as a 21-year-old. We'll hear more from Melanie later. Next, I talked to Tara a little bit about her relationship with Dylan. We are, we are, I'm six years older than Dylan, so, and uh, we ha- I have uh, the two brothers. We share um, a dad. Um, we have different moms. And, uh, yeah, so I'm six years older than Dylan, and and so he was considered really the baby of the family. Um, he's, you know, he's fun and had a sense of humor, um, sarcastic, is pretty funny. Um, <clears throat> some memories, I have uh, a few, like I said, he's always the baby of the family, so we really, you know, 
um, when we hung out, we, we were a trio and like camping and stuff. We'd always, you know, he'd be always tagging around and, and, you know, he really looked up to his brother, Derek and, and, um, and he also had two younger brothers. Uh, Melanie had two other sons, and with a different father. So, um, so yeah, he had a large family, and uh, he was really family, family oriented. He always made sure that we were all contacting each other, and and was concerned that even if you know because me and Mel aren't related, um, you know, making sure that we still kept contact and stuff like that. So, so he was kind of like the family glue. Yeah, he was the glue, exactly. Um, he was. He was the connection, the prime connection between all of us uh, because it, it is such a spidered family. Um, and um, so, so uh, yeah, we have quite a family tree. But he was he was really great that way. Um, he had a he really had a, um, a heroic disposition. He's you know he's all he, he would always he wanted to be a firefighter. Yeah. Um, you know, he he liked being, you know, the protector, the hero, you know, and uh, he's, he's funny <laughs> sometimes, <Yeah. laughs> you know, sisterly, brotherly thing. He'd, he'd razz me all the time, but yeah, you know. So he was just yeah. like every little brother should be. Every just... little brother you can imagine. Yeah. <laughs> he was just a baby, though. So, you know, if he needed something, I would, you know, drop anything to help him. And, uh, you know, he lived with me for a couple months before he moved up to Edmonton. We didn't grow up together. We grew right. up together on weekends, right? Sure. We, when yep. Dad had us, right? Yeah. So uh, we never had that brotherly sister, you know, fighting relationship. We've <laughs> sure. always had a really good connection that way. Um and so he would call me, you know, Tara, I'm, I'm swinging by, and, and we'd hang out and, and as friends. And especially now that he was getting older, um, he was uh, 20 when he lived with me. So, and then unfortunately, he just never got that chance to to find his wife and family. And, yeah, he he was just getting his life started, he really. Just, he was he was just starting, and we were all just trying to help him out, right? He was just kind of, you know, navigating the world and trying to fit in somewhere, and you know, try to be away from mom and dad, and and come out here because they're in Saskatchewan, come out here to Alberta with us and and my cousins, and 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 then it all went wrong. So, yeah. From Tara's place, Dylan traveled to Edmonton, where he moved in with his two first cousins. Colin DeMasson and Colin's brother, Nick Koshman, Dylan wanted to pursue a job as an apprentice pipe fitter, and he was considering a return to school at some point to learn more about this trade. Trades are a good source of income. Especially right now. People are talking, uh, well, this was 12 years ago, but there aren't enough tradespeople in the world. Definite shortage of Mm -hmm. trades happening because everybody's focused on uh, technology, uh, you know. And being a pipe fitter in Alberta is probably a pretty lucrative job. At least at that time. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. The young men all lived in a rented bungalow in South Edmonton where 33rd Avenue Northwest meets 104th Street Northwest. And not that it's relevant to the story, but the exterior of the home has this distinguishing feature. It's a large, ornate black cross, it, and mm-hmm. it's equidistant, so it doesn't look like a Christian cross. Mm-hmm. It's just this cross, and it's on the right side of the door, 
It just is a weird, it's a weird feature on, on the side of the house. And I don't know if, if something that appears on homes in Edmonton, I and know. maybe somebody can explain it to us in, in the Umbriard or email us or something like that. I'm fascinated. I'm curious now. Yeah, but it was just a just a weird thing to see. It, it's made the house stand out. Yeah, yeah. And it makes it stand out today because I Google mapped yeah. the place yeah. and it's still there. Fascinating. So, yeah. But I digress. The three young men did what young single men often do. They worked hard and they partied harder. Yeah, it's, it's small town living at its finest. Well, that's Edmonton now. Oh, that's right. He's in Edmonton. Well, it's, it's still... You should pay attention to the show. Uh, in 2008, Dylan was a good-looking, fit young man with a bright smile. He stood around 5 feet 9 inches tall and weighed between 180 and 190. Solid fellow. He was clean-cut with short brown hair, hazel eyes, and a deep scar that looked like a dimple on the left side of his face. Tara told me a little bit about that dimple-slash-scar. When he was a little kid, he fell down, and he... He fell down right onto on a screwdriver in his face, and that gave him that big dimple. Ah. Yeah, so and it, it just made it look like he always, you know, he always had that scar. It made it look like it was part of him, and and he really made that dimple work. It was cute. So, <laughs> you know, and that happened when he was young. I don't know, four or five. Melanie would be able to tell you, but it was young. So. Wow. He was diligent about calling home to check in with his family every week or mm. every two. Mm -hmm. From the Edmonton Journal, quote, The last time Melanie Alex heard her son's voice, he was crooning happy birthday into the phone at full volume. And she was teasing him, saying, Who is this? Dylan, he said. It's Dylan. But Dylan doesn't sing, she said, laughing. But I'm a changed man, Mom, he said. That would be both a very heartwarming memory last memory to have but then also a very painful one yeah double-edged sword sometime soon after his move to edmonton dylan met his girlfriend aaron huff aaron later told fifth estate that dylan was sweet and funny but also a bit shy she said there was a growing tension between the cousins in that bungalow and that she suspected that her presence was at least one of the factors in that Dylan was bringing Aaron around so much that his cousin Colin complained that he should be paying more rent. It was a sore spot between them, and mm. Dylan was considering moving out as soon as he could. Mm. In the early morning hours of Saturday, October 11, 2008, things went sideways. As this was Dylan's first Thanksgiving away from home and his immediate family, he'd invited another cousin, his first cousin, Cameron Koshman, to hang out and party with him. And Cameron lived in Moose Jaw, so mm. he came from Moose Jaw to okay. hang out. Okay. But according to statements later given to police, Colin did not want Cameron there for the weekend, and he had told Dylan that. During our conversation with Tara, she talked to me a little bit about Cameron Koshman. He's got a background, Mike. Like, it's crazy. Like, he's in and out of jail. He's a lifetime Um like, I've never talked to him. I haven't talked to him since I was young. Was that and why Colin didn't want him around? Yes, yes. Colin didn't want him around, and uh, but Dylan, well, I pay rent here, right? Like, I pay rent. Yeah. Okay. Right? And now this is his, well, I can do what I want. You're not my dad. I'm going to pay rent, <laughs> yeah. right? And, uh, and, and that's what happened. Colin said that when Cameron showed up, he, quote, evicted Dylan and told him he had to be out by the end of the month. Oh, wow. Colin went out drinking with his other friends. So 
you know, you're just like, okay, here's this young cousin of mine just not following the rules in yep. the house and he's frustrated. Yep. Okay, I've had enough of you. Get out. Yep. By the end of the month, I'm going out with my buddies. See you later. Yep. But through the evening, there's more drinking and partying at the house back at the bungalow. And Nick Koshman, Colin's brother, was still there and overheard Dylan and Cameron plotting to, quote, kick Colin's ass when he came home. Mm. So Nick texted his brother to give him a heads up. This is my understanding of it. Cameron and Dylan go for a drink and food, and then um, Dylan comes back and takes a nap. At this time, Cameron takes a cab somewhere, who knows where, yeah. and he comes back. He's supposedly going to talk to Aaron, Dylan's girlfriend, and um, but he never meets up with her downtown. Hmm. But he leaves and then he comes back. And then this is when they started drinking again and uh, they started talking about kicking his butt again and then Nick calls him and then Cameron, or Colin comes back and, and then they have the argument. Fueled by alcohol, tensions finally boiled over and a fight broke out between hmm. Dylan and Colin in the kitchen of the home they shared. And they were crashing about the kitchen, yeah. all kinds of stuff flying yeah. everywhere, you know. As would happen. Men. Yep having a scrap from a CBC article, according to Nick Koshman's nine page statement written after his cousin's disappearance, quote, after Colin came home, he and Dylan quote, went at it, pushing each other around. They make it to the floor and Dylan's been throwing punches and Colin looked like he's going more to restrain Dylan than hurt him. End quote. Mm. Then Nick says that he turned around to get a drink. And when I came back to see Dylan had left and Colin said he went out the back. Okay. From the same CBC article, in a later witness statement, Colin said, I confronted them, meaning Dylan and Cameron, yeah. and told them to leave. So he's telling them to leave. Yeah. Get out of here. Okay, if you want to fight me, you're not in my house at all. Yeah, yeah makes sense. We argued, and a fight-slash-wrestling match broke out. Colin went on to write that after the wrestling match, he continued to argue with Dylan and told him to, quote, get out, he didn't live here anymore, come back and get his stuff later, he left out the back. So Dylan just so, left he, out the back door. So he's saying, yeah, uh, this fighting what? ensued, yep. uh, he was just, get the hell out of here, you don't live here anymore, Dylan. Okay, Books bye, it. out the back, okay. Cameron spoke to CBC's Fifth Estate as well. From the accompanying article, quote, he said in a telephone interview that after Dylan was kicked out of the house, he hurriedly grabbed his things from Dylan's bedroom in the basement and went out the same door that Dylan left from. Because mm -hmm. it's like, okay, I'm not sticking around if yeah. Cousin's gone. Dylan had stormed off into the cold night without his jacket, wearing only a t-shirt, skateboarding sneakers, and a pair of jeans. A website citing historical weather from October 11, 2008, said that the low that morning was around minus 8 degrees Celsius. You're not going to be uh, it's cold. sustaining yourself long outside in no. that attire in minus 8. No, definitely not. Dylan, apparently, was last seen traveling toward 34 Avenue and Calgary Trail just a block away. So more like a, a major intersection. Yep. Quote, according to Cameron's phone records, someone used Dylan's phone to call Cameron at 3.30 a.m. Several times in the span of a minute. Cameron says he missed all the calls because he was simultaneously calling 911 to report that he was hiding from Colin, whom he alleges was trying to beat him up. Okay. 
Uh, at a ar- interesting coincidence. At around the same time, just before 4 a.m., 911 calls also came from neighbors who were reporting a loud, violent fist fight on the front lawn of the rented bungalow at 10404 33rd Avenue. According to the timeline, Dylan is long gone by this time, so it had to involve Cameron, Colin, and Nick. Things get a little murky around this point. The police responded to the call hours later. But when they knocked on the door and received no answer, they left. Everything's quiet again. There's no disturbance now. Sure. Uh, but uh, here's the thing. Yeah. This happens so many times I a would, night. Yeah, I would imagine it's fairly standard mm-hmm. and everything's quiet now. They, yeah. they clearly went back inside. They'll show up real quick if you say there's a gun or a knife. Yeah, yeah. But... If it's just dudes out um, on the front lawn my fighting. My neighbors are fighting outside again. Can by you the, send somebody, yeah. you know, and then yeah, they come by. And it's like, oh, everything's quiet now. I guess they, exactly. they went inside and passed out. Exactly. But what Tara mentioned to me and does not get mentioned in news stories is how many 911 calls were there? Apparently there were quite a few if you consider the neighbors and Cameron. Why on earth didn't the Edmonton Police Service respond sooner? Dylan sent a message over MSN Messenger to his brother Derek, asking Derek for his phone number. Derek did not see the message until later and received no response when he messaged Dylan back. It was the last message anyone got from Dylan. Okay. Aaron Huff, who had tentative plans with Dylan that night, had been texting with him throughout the evening. But after the fight in the kitchen, she got no no more replies from Dylan. Yeah. And after texting a few more times, went to bed. The next day, Dylan was still not responding. So Aaron, now worried, started calling the home phone at Dylan's house at the bungalow. But there was no answer after repeated Mm. attempts. Mm. According to the Fifth Estate story, when Aaron finally did get through on Saturday night, so almost a full day later, it was Colin who answered. Colin told her that Dylan was not home and he did not know where he'd gone. When she asked if she could come over and pick up her things, Colin said no. Interesting. I mean, sure, it could just be that after such a heated night, he would want, no, I don't want anything to do with him or you right now. Yeah, Yeah, you were part of the problem. Yeah, so I mean, it could just be as simple as that. Aaron called around looking for Dylan for the next two days. She contacted everyone who she could think of, including Dylan's brother, Derek. She kept trying Dylan's phone, calling and texting. Dylan didn't respond. Aaron called Edmonton Hospitals to see if Dylan had been injured and maybe shown up there. He wasn't at the hospital. She even called the remand center to see if Dylan had been arrested. Sure, sure. But police told her due to privacy concerns, they were unable to reveal who they were holding there. And that's standard procedure as well. You can't call and say, hey, do you have my husband in jail? That, really? Hey. Yeah, you can't do I that. I would think that that would be a no-brainer to be no, able to... Apparently not. Wow, okay. Aaron hoped that it, she'd be able to connect with Dylan when he returned to work on Tuesday sure. after the holiday. Yeah. So she called Dylan's workplace the morning that he was supposed to show up and found out he didn't. No-show. He was a no-show. He hadn't contacted work to tell them that he wasn't going to be there. He just didn't show up. Yep. Aaron then contacted Dylan's brother, Derek, to tell him that Dylan had disappeared. 
Derek called me and he told me that Dylan's girlfriend was was worried about him. She never heard, talked to him. I was working at the time. I was working as a receptionist. And when I got the call, I kind of thought, you know, again, he's young. And I didn't know he had a girlfriend at this time. Mm-hmm. So I didn't know how serious it was. I didn't know that they were dating for a couple months. He didn't let me know. Sure. So um, yeah. I just kind of thought, well, maybe he's just trying to ghost her, right? And and so, but that wasn't the case. And I, he said, well, Tara, I'm really worried. I think I should call mom. And then I said, no, you know, don't call. You know, just give him a day. Yeah. You know, and then, and then but uh, by that time, it had already been the weekend, right? This was, I think, Tuesday at the, t- uh, at the call because he went missing on well this saturday in the wee morning so like basically friday night and then yeah so this is tuesday so it's like okay maybe you went with a friend for the weekend right like Mm -hmm. it's a long weekend and uh maybe he just kind of was trying to ghost her or something and and then he said no i'm really worried i'm gonna call mom he called mom (laughs) and mom went crazy like i suspected she would only you know, you need a mom to go crazy sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, this was definitely the case for that. From an article later on discovermoosejaw.com, Melanie said that she wanted to report her son missing, but she wasn't able to. Quote, even back then, when I phoned the police to say my son was missing from Moose Jaw in Edmonton, they told me I couldn't report a missing person from across provinces and other cities. That's all changed now. And that's what the public has to know, that when there is a missing person, you can report them right away. The sooner, the better. So, but that wasn't her experience at the time. It's awesome of her to provide that clarity for future yeah, use. But, but wow, what a kick in the junk. Right? So you're, you want to report your son is missing, but you're not there. So you're mm-hmm. not physically here, yeah. so you can't really determine whether this person is missing. Melanie called Colin DeMassen to explain the issue and told him to report Dylan missing right now. Mm-hmm. Later, though, according to police, Colin never did phone to report Dylan missing. According to a media release from the Edmonton Police Service, it was Aaron Huff who told them that Dylan was missing on the evening of October 15, 2008. The media release Added, the, added to the description we have above, stating, He is in very good shape. He has nice teeth, short brown hair, hazel eyes, and scars on his left cheek and left eyebrow. He has earrings in both ears. Here's some more of what Tara recalls from that week. So on Thursday, um, I came out to Edmonton with my uh, boyfriend at the time, and we went to the house, and... Um, there was a police officer there, and they took Collins and Nick's statements right in the kitchen, and then everything seemed kind of normal until me and my boyfriend went back to the truck, and uh, all of a sudden uh, a bunch of cops came and uh, a bunch of police officers and swarmed the next-door neighbors. And at that point, I thought they found him, and so I was crying. I was calling back home. I think they found him. I don't think it's good. Like, there's a lot of cops here. And um, the one of the police officers that were talking to us um, 
there was two of the main two that were talking to us, like a liaison between us and saying, you know, don't worry about it. Go back home. And it's like, I cannot not worry about this. Yeah, I can't no go kidding. Because I live in Red Deer, right? So, right. no, I'm yeah. not going to, you know, I, I'll wait and find out. And then after a while, we did find out that they found a bag and the wallet back there. So that's what that was all about at that time. And when I was talking, uh, when the, the police officers were all there, my family was already on the road driving up at this point. So, yeah. you know, they're, they're going to be there. And then that, then once my family, that's when it all came very real and we started searching and, uh, and, and everything just happened from there. When Melanie Alex arrived in Edmonton to start searching for Dylan herself, he'd been missing for nearly a week already. And we'll take a break right here. And we're back. Thoughts so far. My gut tells me to lean in a few directions, but that's the challenge with missing persons. Right, exactly. Is that... You only only have the information that you have. And there have been instances where people have been dead set that this person did it, and it wasn't that person. It wasn't that person at all. And so... Yeah. Although police did a cursory search of the area, it was actually left up to Dylan's family to look for him. Police expressed to Melanie that they thought they might find Dylan deceased, having died due to a combination of alcohol and exposure. He walked off without a jacket on into a cold night. That would be a very logical It's uh, not an uncommon thing on the prairies in northern Alberta for somebody to wander off. Had too much to drink, wander off, get lost, and... Melanie had some different thoughts on this that she shared with me. Uh, The night he went missing, he was drinking, day drinking. Mm -hmm. They said how much he drank, and it was a lot, but he did sleep for four or five hours. So he he slept, then he got up, and they went and ate. And I asked the police, you know, right away you assumed that he passed out somewhere and he was just a missing person like tried to walk he walked somewhere and he froze to death Hmm. i knew that didn't happen for one thing he was a physically fit guy he would have came and got shelter he would have went somewhere and i I didn't agree with that but that's what the police were directing at and then when i asked you know the missing persons detectives did you talk to the waitress where he went the night you know after when he woke up and went to eat and had you know yeah no, we did not. And I said, why? I went and talked to her. She told me he had a platter of food yeah. and one and one drink, and he seemed okay. Yeah, I wonder why the why the police wouldn't ask those questions. It doesn't make any sense. Well, it, it wasn't homicide either, right? Mm-hmm. They kept telling me that. Every time I asked them to do something or look into something, well, there is no proof. And this is the wall we hit constantly. It was so frustrating with the Privacy Act and stuff. Yeah, They couldn't do certain things because they were not homicide. They were missing people, and it's not illegal to be missing. Right. And there was no there was no proof that he was deceased or in any harm. So that was the problem we kept hitting it. We knew his personality, that yeah. this is not it, right? This is not what happened. And Erin mentioned that in the, uh, in the Fifth Estate, that when she was calling around, she called the remand center, and they wouldn't tell her whether or not he was there. So, no. yeah, I mean... It's all precious hours that are ticking away while you, yeah, yeah, yeah. You, you know. And even, you know, it was five days later and like Aaron was new to us. I had maybe talked to her once, like he met her in Edmonton, right? Mm-hmm. And we knew he was dating this girl and it was new. Like he, like I said, he didn't have a lot of girlfriends. He was, you know, kind of 
up there to get his school and go to work. And yet he met her and they were friends and then they started dating. And so when this happened, you know, she tried to contact my son through, she had none of our numbers Mm -hmm. and Dylan, Dylan's phone was missing with him. So, I mean, it was hard for her. I felt so bad when I learned all this later that, you know, she said, this is what happened and something's wrong. And, and when she contacted uh, Dylan's brother, I mean, she just sent a, a message. I don't know when it was through MSN then or if it was some other Facebook. I don't know. But Del- Derek, who was surprised Dylan was dating too, just figured, oh, you know, this is just a girl that really likes him and is kind of stalking him. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. He didn't really think it, you know, and, and, and he wasn't that concerned until the third day or fourth day when, you know, he tried to phone Dylan and then he kind of phoned around to see if anybody talked to Dylan. And right away, the alarm bells are saying, because this is not Dylan. He's in contact with somebody. Yeah. You know, so that was our first, I mean, we got to get up there now. Yeah. Something that's not right. And yeah, we stayed for three weeks and numerous, numerous trips after that and did our own kind of detective work or tried to. Yeah, for sure. And I I saw photos on the Facebook page of like a wall you've, you had set up with uh, all the different maps and things. And like the police would stand there and look at it and say, Wow. Like they could not believe what we were doing. We weren't just going to go home. We were, yeah. we were you know, if you guys aren't going to do this, we are, you know, and, and, the, and their excuse was, which, you know, we don't have them. We don't know where he went. Where do we start? We don't have any, they did the 300 meter search when, you know, they, I finally got them. Well, I shouldn't say I did. Back then, 2008, I couldn't make a missing person from Moose Jaw. So I had to get a hold of Aaron and yeah. say, Aaron, you've got to phone the police right now. She goes, I did, and they wouldn't listen to me. And when I asked them that question, they said, do you know how many girlfriends we get calling in about their missing boyfriend? And I went, well, I'm his mother, and he's missing. And, and I, you know, nope, we can't take your call. You're going to have to get someone from Edmonton up here to phone in. But that's changed I cannot believe now, it. right? Oh, it has. Thank God. Like, yeah. so that was so, you know, I'm talking, you're in a mad panic, and you want, you know, times have already, you know, days have gone by. We have lost precious time already. Let's go, you know. So it was really hard, but, you know, they did get on it, and they did do their 300-meter search with a helicopter and dogs and stuff, and they, they found some of another cousin's belongings thrown around the yard and different things like that. And, of course, you know, they did their little door-to-door, and, and when nothing showed up, it was they just assumed that he had walked somewhere and froze to death, yeah. and we'd find him in the spring. And in 2009, I think it was a record a number of bodies found around Edmonton. There you go. Yep. And there are some wooded areas around there, all kinds of stuff like that, but uh, nobody ever found anything. Some speculated that he was alive and well, maybe holed up with friends who were unknown to Aaron and his family. Mm -hmm. And this is all in the first week of him missing, right? Yep. Other scenarios had him hopping into a car or onto a bus, maybe going someplace else, like B.C. or... Okay, but he didn't didn't have his stuff. Right. Like most of his clothing. Staging from the house at 10404 33rd Avenue, Melanie Alex rallied 19 friends and family into search parties to go out looking for her missing son. They put up and handed out thousands of posters. They canvassed neighborhoods and combed wooded areas nearby. According to the Fifth Estate, neither Colin DeMassen nor Nick Koshman, Dylan's roommates, were interested in or participated in the initial searches for Dylan. 
A report claimed that Colin said he was not Dylan's keeper and chose to keep a skydiving date rather than look for his missing cousin. According to the, also according to the Fifth Estate, Colin made an odd remark at an update about the search for Dylan, saying that people go missing and end up dead in Edmonton all the time, and maybe he was killed and dumped at a construction site. Tara helped me to make sense of this information in the conversation that we had with her. Maybe you can help to clarify what I learned on the Fifth Estate. And they said that uh, Colin and Nick didn't seem interested in helping to search. They really painted them negatively. They really did, yeah. Yeah. So is there any other information that you have that might, you know... You don't have a few days, do you? <laughs> because, um, no, the fifth estate was, uh, it was supposed to be a little bit more, you know. We knew that they would focus on my cousins because they were the last ones to see them. Mm-hmm. Um, but at this point, there wasn't a murder investigation or anything, a homicide investigation. The construction site, for instance. Yeah. Well, that happened there's a little bit more context to a lot of those things right so uh, it doesn't make it so black and white um because we were all in a room there was probably about 20 30 of us in a room Mm -hmm. with two police officers and we were all discussing different ways of of what happened to dylan yeah there was many different options thrown out colin was well, there was a construction site everywhere because they were just doing that overpass. Like, there was a major construction area everywhere in there. And then we said, well, you know, he said, well, couldn't he just been uh, put in a construction site or yeah, however he put it? I don't remember exactly because memories can be funny, but... Uh, the police officer immediately discounted it. He said, no, I don't think that's a possibility in this area because, you know, like there, there's night guards and it's very busy and, you know, they don't just fill up holes and, you know, and they don't, you know, just do that. So it, being in a construction site in the area wouldn't, you know, necessarily, you know, he kind of discounted it right away. So, but that was kind of like, it seems like, they took that and rolled with it, and it just it, it just didn't it seemed some seemed out of context really um, to me. I there's it's it's difficult because um, there's a lot of suspicion on Colin and Nick and Cameron mm. and Ashley. They were there that night. They were the last ones to see him. Yeah. There was a big argument. There was alcohol involved. You know, it was there's I understand like it's a lot. Um, I, I don't know how to explain everything uh, with the Fifth Estate yeah. because there's just so much to explain. Every little detail, every nuance, there's just so much more context behind it. And it just doesn't make it so black and white. And, like, um, I, the police officers from day one have never, ever hinted that he, they thought he was dead. Yeah. They always suspected that he walked away and froze to them. Yeah. That was their main, you know, that was their main theory the entire time. We asked, every, and we went every single year and asked them every single year, no, you know, and then I don't, I don't know how to explain how the ball was dropped so much, like, like the the nine one one calls and and the police investigation, I don't know what they have. Yeah. They, they you know they're surprising me every turn, right? So 
I really don't know. There's not a really good connection with us, with the police. Yeah. Um, because they did. They, they, they completely, they, they went for 10, well, eight years, I guess the fifth estate was, and eight years and saying that, you know, that they don't think there was anything. They couldn't do things because they didn't think of anything suspicious. They right. couldn't look at his phone records. They couldn't look at his um, online accounts and his messengers and his things. And then all of a sudden, 10 years later, they're looking for a computer that he had. And it's, you know, it, 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 it really, it's been a lot of drama every single year. And it seems like the police have almost created it. It's just, mm-hmm. I'm sorry for even saying that. But no, I mean, that's I don't, fair enough. A lot of the family doesn't think the way I do, but, you know, but I just don't think, you know, they, they've they worked and I don't know who to turn to. Yeah. I really don't know who to turn to, um, to actually take a good look at it and, and know if, the, you know, if there's mistakes that have been made and, and uh, if they think my cousins did it, I don't know why they've waited so long. I just don't understand. Yeah. Right? So, um, like I said, like uh, all of our family relationships now are quite strained. Mm. I don't really talk to many of them. So it's, just, it's been a very difficult time because, unfortunately, Dylan is here and he isn't the glue that keeps us together, right? So... Although Colin's behavior and remarks may have been odd, as of their interviews in 2017 publicly, the family stood behind Colin. This includes Dylan's mom. Tara gave me some more information about context, around context about what was really going on with Colin and Nick at that time. Nick and Colin, they were working. You got to remember that the whole entire family, there was probably like 20, and we used their house as a base for two weeks, all of us were there all day, every day, right? Like they were, they were perfectly fine. Yeah. And he, uh, you know, Colin came uh, with me to put up flyers. And I remember down at, in the Edmonton bus station, putting up flyers with him, mm-hmm. you know, and like, um, Nick and I, uh, a couple times, I think I went with him. They went to every single vi- vigil until they weren't allowed to go. Okay. And they're, why weren't they allowed to go? Well, because of family fighting, because of fighting, because sure, Colin has a character, Um, you know, he's, he's his own person. And, you know, it's, you know, he said some very rude things to Melanie and, uh, and he, he shouldn't be excused for that. And I'm mad at him as well. I don't, I think he should have did the fifth estate. I think still to this day, even though I know what the fifth estate was about, I still think he should have went on there to say his story. But and I, but I get why he doesn't. He's he's scared, and I, you know, like they're 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 they they made it in no uncertain terms that they think he did it. Yeah. So it's not they think Nick and him or Ashley and Cameron. It's the, they think he. It was, a, you know, they, they did the eerie music looking up, you know, slowly zooming up to his face, right? Like, they think it's him, right? Mm-hmm. So, it's just, I don't know. Like, I don't, I, I don't know what happened that night. It's like trial by media for this guy. It is. It is yeah. definitely. <laughs> he, you know, but he doesn't help himself. 
So how can you help a guy that doesn't help? I told him I would be right beside him when he did the interview. And, you know, if they told him, you know, if they started accusing him or whatever, you know, you could say, you know, say what you want to say. Yeah. As long as you say it, use your voice, right? Yeah. But he's scared his words are going to come back and, and kick him. And, um, you know, I said he, he didn't need words. Yeah. <laughs> they, they already think he did it. Yeah. So, you know, like at least show some human side, right? Some, you know, the the other side that the media is not knowing. And it's just him. And I just don't understand. There's so many other factors that happened that night that the police, I don't know. Like, I don't know, Mike. I don't really know because I'm scared. I mean, you know, there's more information, but I can't even, I'm scared to say it because, I gotcha, yeah. you know, like, because yep. like, it can ruin the integrity of the investigation. And that's yep. all you ever hear, right? Yep. It might ruin the integrity of the investigation if, you know, you give this information. And it's like, it's, 12, it's 11 years, you yeah. know, like. What what integrity do we have left, right? So, I don't know, Mike. I honestly don't know. Leads went nowhere, and searchers ran out of places to look and the energy to do it. Remember, the searchers we're talking about are the family, the only people who were left looking for Dylan at that time. By October 22nd, the search party had dwindled to 11 and began to wind down after that. A local lawyer posted a $5,000 reward for information information leading to Dylan's safe return. Interestingly, the same weekend that Dylan went missing, there was another major police incident in Edmonton. It was the weekend that Mark Twitchell lured and killed Johnny Altinger. Perhaps as Edmonton homicide detectives were focusing on that case, this one didn't get the attention that it really deserved. According to an October 22, 2008 article, in the Star Phoenix newspaper, Dylan's aunt, Penny Cummings, said, quote, We are a faithful family, and we are asking everyone who believes in God to pray that he comes home healthy, said Cummings. She said, The family is aware of the worst possibilities, but won't get caught up in the negative what-ifs. If we have to deal with something horrible, we'll deal with it when it comes. Right now, we are dealing with positive things, that Dylan is okay. That maybe he's got slight amnesia or memory loss of some kind. That maybe he's somewhere out there alive and well. Penny continued, Dylan is very, very close to his family. He would never take off without letting us know. He would never worry us, said Cumming, saying he would have told someone of a new job or holiday plans. Mm -hmm. It was mm -hmm. a holiday weekend. He would never leave without telling his mother or grandma or his dad. We all agree that what has happened is very unusual behavior for him, end quote. I can imagine um, in order to keep moving forward and keep looking and, and keep uh, believing that there's a reason why I'm looking, you would want to be thinking, no, this is, we're going to find him. You know, if you can keep it positive, that'll hopefully keep you motivated, as opposed to if you're just like, oh, screw it, doesn't matter anyways. You, you, it'd be easy to just fall back into a, a pile of depression and right. lose motivation. So I can, I can understand it from that perspective of let's just keep positive so we can keep moving forward. There was no sign of Dylan, nor has there been since. Hmm. Christmas came and went with no word from Dylan Koshman. Dylan's family got in touch with the Patterson Group. Ooh one of billionaire Jim Pattison's companies specializing in billboards. Yeah, yeah. 
They were surprised to find out that Patterson was willing to waive the $8,500 fee to put up four billboards in Edmonton, Calgary, Saskatoon, and Winnipeg. Oh, awesome. All of the massive posters with a giant photo and description of Dylan and the number of crime stoppers were placed in high traffic areas for six weeks with the hope of jogging someone's memory or getting a tip about where Dylan is. Another was put up in Regina, but nothing concrete came in those six weeks. That's awesome of Jimmy Patterson. But as we talked about in a previous episode, he's had experiences with Mm -hmm. kidnapping of one of his daughters. Exactly. And And maybe that, that was what this situation could have been. Yep. Nobody knows. Yep. It's still fairly... Dylan's family has remained active in their search for him online and traveling regularly back to Edmonton. Mm -hmm. His mother's heart sinks every time she hears about an unidentified body found in the city. Oh, God, I bet. From a 2014 Global News article, quote, In the federal budget, the government earmarked funding for a DNA index that would help police match the DNA profiles of missing Canadians with unidentified human remains, potentially bringing closure to the families of missing people across the country. I got pretty emotional, said Melanie Alex, whose son Dylan Koshman disappeared in Edmonton in 2008. You don't know if it's ever going to happen, and it's a long road. Since her son had gone missing, Alex had been petitioning the government to establish a national missing persons DNA databank. So this is how she channeled her... What's well, a great, Activism. a very healthy way to channel. And it's kind of mind-blowing that we, as of 2014, we still hadn't had a national DNA. Uh... For missing persons. We had one for criminals. We didn't have one for missing persons. Mm-hmm. It's expensive. Yeah, I would It costs money. Sure, but yeah. In 2017, around the time of the Fifth Estate story on Dylan Koshman's disappearance, Edmonton Police Service, for reasons they have kept to themselves, have now made Dylan's case... EPS file number 08-136304, a homicide investigation. Hmm. The sparse webpage posted on April 20th, 2017 on the EPS site states, The circumstances of his disappearance are very suspicious, heard or seen since that date. There is a reward of up to $40,000 for information leading to the arrest of persons, person or persons responsible for this homicide. If you have any information on this or any other crime, please contact the Edmonton Police Service complaint line at 780-423-4567 or the Edmonton Crime Stoppers at 1-800-222-8477 or submit your tip online. Please reference the EPS file number when possible, and we'll post that in our show notes. But EPS did not tell Dylan Koshman's family first that they were upgrading his investigation to homicide. They told the CBC program the Fifth Estate first. That's right, a media organization heard before the family. And it was the Fifth Estate who told Melanie Alex that her son was no longer a missing person, but was now considered a homicide. Here's what Tara had to say about that situation. They didn't tell us anything about turning it over to homicide until... Uh, the Fifth Estate, actually. The Fifth Estate are the ones that told us. They told the Fifth Estate a few things before they told us. And so that was kind of a surprise. 
but the public information, like, it shouldn't have been given to the fifth estate before. Like, that, that is something that shouldn't have to be told, you know, to a large professional organization like that, right? Melanie mentioned that she felt really blindsided by that whole we thing. We were all blindsided. Like, I'll tell you, and we didn't know, like, I didn't know anything until it aired. Interesting that they, so you would think that they would have to have something to for them to then rule it a homicide because I don't think they, with missing people, I don't think there's a timeline in which they just, because is Michael Dunahee's case? Is he, is that qualified? Like, do they say that's a homicide investigation or do know. they I say missing? I, I think they just keep him as missing people. And so it's interesting. I don't think so. <laughs> I think it, I think it depends on factors. It depends on yeah, what they yeah. found out that they're not telling us. Well, but, and that's what I'm getting at is like, there must be something that they know that they can't make public mm-hmm. to lead them in that direction. Bill Clark, the EPS staff sergeant who recommended the change into a homicide investigation from missing persons, told CBC, quote, If a person just wanders off or goes missing, we usually find them, Clark says. There has been various stories about that. You know, if you get hit by a car and wander off, if you're going to be found somewhere, it just doesn't make sense. Mm -hmm. Clark says that he doesn't believe some of the individuals the EPS interviewed have been upfront with police. I think we have people who have lied to family members. I think we need to get to the bottom of it. We need to really find out what happened to Dylan and bring closure for this family. Clark says he thinks Dylan was killed the night he went missing. Yeah. Can I prove it yet? No, he says. Will I prove it? I hope so. I do believe that we will, end quote. Hmm. So. So, I, I mean, I think... <clears throat> I think that's what we all feel. But here's the thing. So here's here's the scenario that I think. So everybody's got to be thinking, well, he uh, got into a fight with this cousin. The cousin wasn't amenable to helping him. everybody search, mm-hmm. all this kind of thing. Mm-hmm. How about you're a drunk driver? You're driving home in your pickup truck yeah. from the bar late at night. Yep. You're weaving all across the road. And some other drunk guy stumbles out in front of him. You hit him and you kill him. Yep. And you stop your truck. You pile the body into the back of your truck and you drive off. <sighs> right? And then you, the, the drunk driver, goes and disposes of this body somewhere way outside the city limits. I mean, it, it's... It's, 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 an just, op, it's, it's an another op, speculation. It, like, it's, it's another... Po- I mean, that sure. Could that happen? I mean, we usually see somebody... He went near, he was near a a major highway. Yeah, the the uh, Calgary Calgary Trail Road. But typically, if you're a drunk driver and you hit somebody, you're going to just continue to drive. You're not going to stop. But, I mean, it is, that's certainly something that could How do you know? I know, well, I know, I know of stories exactly like this, but. I I can't see if it's about, if you're trying to mitigate risks, stopping mm-hmm. your vehicle, trying to pick up a body, load it into your truck while you're intoxicated, there's a high probability another vehicle's going to come by as opposed to just Four being like... in the morning? As opposed to just being like, uh, oh, fuck, and keep Thanksgiving going. Thanksgiving weekend? Eh, yeah, it would be make more sense to just keep going. But Would it? I, I would think so, yeah. Who knows? Let less opportunity to get caught. It's just a, a scenario. It's it's cer- I, it's not what I think happened, yeah. by the way, but it, it's just a scenario. It's certainly an it's certainly something that could happen. Like that is an option. 
So also from the CBC article, quote, when informed of Clark's comments, Dylan's mother, Melanie Alex, burst into tears. Mm. She said, uh, it hurts because I don't want it to be any relative that could harm another person, yep. she says. Yep. I want to find Dylan. Yep. Dylan's father, Dan Koshman, doesn't believe any of his relatives are involved either. That doesn't change my mind at all, he said after Clark's comments. Hmm. I don't believe that they had anything to do with it. No. I can understand wanting to just, I no, I don't think they did it. Nobody knows no. that anybody did anything. No, no. We can't sit here and accuse anybody. We don't have anything to the contrary. A dedicated tip line has been set up by EPS for information on Dylan Koshman's homicide. It's 780-391-5444 and the numbers we mentioned above mm. or call 911. News reports said that the family always leaves an empty spot for Dylan at special dinners mm. year after year. Dylan's family holds vigils for his safe return close to the anniversary of his disappearance. Mm -hmm. At a candlelight vigil on, organized by Dylan's family and friends on October 11, 2018, the 10th anniversary, at the place he was last seen, his mother painfully read some words that she had written. And I found uh, her note on their Facebook page, Help Find Dylan mm. Koshman. It reads, it's on this Thanksgiving weekend 10 years ago that our Dylan went missing. 10 long years. And it seems time has frozen in the year 2008 when our lives changed forever. The ambiguous grief we still have leaves us feeling sad, frustrated, confused, and angry. We need answers and closure. Dylan is a missing piece of our family. Over the last 10 years, we have prayed, searched, postered, researched, and petitioned. We have much empathy toward families of the missing, so we do what we can to help them in their search. And yet, in the midst of all this, we have not lost sight of love and hope. We will never give up hope. Hope in finding Dylan and the answers we desperately need. We ask for continued vigilance. We need the truth. We need answers. Whatever the answers are, we need resolution. We ask for open ears, minds, and hearts of all involved in our search for truth. And we ask for your prayers. No matter how you pray or to whom, I ask that you include Dylan and all our family in your prayers. Our deepest desire is peace. Please pray for peace. Signed, Melanie Alex. Hmm. Ah, poor lady. Yeah, I know. Yeah. Like, there's a lot of pain there. Yeah. And, yeah. And even with resolution, the pain yeah. won't go away, sadly. I want to say a special thank you to Tara Koshman, Dylan's sister, and Melanie Alex, Dylan's mom, for participating in this episode. It would not have been near as great without you. So thank you very much. And we do hope and pray for some closure for your family. We did get quite a bit of audio from both of you, and we really appreciate that. And for all our listeners who are Patreon members of $5 and above, you are going to get a special after show this week, and you'll be able to hear um, that raw audio of my discussions with Melanie Alex and Tara Koshman. I've never had a family member go missing. I've never, not like this situation. Sure, mm -hmm. like someone goes missing for a few minutes. Yep, yep. Uh, so I didn't know, really know what to do if that happens. Yeah. So I thought, let's do some research. Yeah, good. Maybe people are going to be interested in this. And so what I found uh, 
or some answers at a website called missingpersonsinformation.ca. And it's a bilingual website for the Canadian Centre for Information on Missing Adults, the CCIMA. Mm. And they said that each year police record over 100,000 missing persons in Canada. Jeez. Right? 100,000. That's a lot of panic. That is a lot of panic. They go on to say, in the overwhelming majority of cases, missing persons are located within a very short period of time, usually within days of disappearance. Sometimes the missing person is located by police, but often the person returns home on his or her own. Yeah, yeah. Under the heading, Reasons People Go Missing, the website writes, Reasons why adults go missing are as varied as the individuals themselves. In some cases, several factors may contribute to a person's disappearance. Mm -hmm. There are a number of classifications used in describing the missing adult population. The classification below presents some of the major categories of missing adults, and I found these super interesting. So there are deliberate disappearances. And this includes adults who may be experiencing life difficulties with significant people in their lives, financial issues, Mm -hmm. family breakdown, other problems uh, that may be overwhelming. Mm -hmm. So the decision to disappear is a way to escape. I, and I can get that. In the height of my depression, there was many times where you're like, I just want to run away from all, all the responsibilities right. and stresses and pressures and stuff. So, exactly. Yeah, absolutely. Um, this also includes adults who decide simply to leave family and friends behind to start a new life elsewhere. Mm-hmm. And I know people who have done that. Maybe they didn't disappear, but people who have just said, yep, I'm done. I'm See done you later. With, I'm done with all you. Yep. Suicide. Mm-hmm. Some adults disappear with the intention of committing suicide. So... When I was a youngster, um, I remember a friend of my parents, uh, he was an older kid. So he was probably, oh gosh, he might've been 14, 15 years oh, older wow. than me. Okay. So he went, dis- went missing Yeah. and his parents couldn't find him, couldn't find him. A week later, he was found off a road outside of Bridgewater. He had <sighs> put a hose from the back of his car oh, yeah. into his, yeah. you know, oh, from the tailpipe and he had asphyxiated himself with carbon monoxide. So he died by suicide. But uh, that was, that's the only case that I've ever heard of anybody going missing that I can recall. There Mm -hmm. was another one similar to that, exactly the same outcome in Bridgewater, but I didn't know the person as well. Yeah. And uh, so that is definitely a reason why people disappear. Absolutely. Adventure or accident victims. And this is kind of what I was talking about. Mm -hmm. Um, These adults include those who disappear while engaging in activities such as boating, adventure hiking, diving, or other activities and and experience a catastrophic event. We we get that a lot here with hikers getting lost up in the mountains, Mm -hmm. uh, snowboarders who go off. uh, uh, Yeah. Drifters. Drifters are those who lead a more transient lifestyle. Over time, contact with family and friends is lost. I actually know a lot of people who are drifters and Mm -hmm. just have, because, you know, I'm a recovering addict and alcoholic. I know a number of people who have done, who have drifted, um, myself included, very briefly. Yeah, Uh, and I would imagine if you're uh, an addict living in, in a neighborhood 
where addicts live, uh, internet access and phones and keeping in contact with Here's family. It doesn't cross your mind yeah. because you're, you're worried about your next drink and your next Yeah, yeah good point. They, yeah. You don't care about yeah. your family. I know I didn't, which is true. I, mm-hmm. I was just thinking about me all yep. the time. Yep. Unintentional disappearances. So these include people with dementia, Alzheimer's mm. di- di- mm-hmm. uh, disease. We heard about um, that elderly man who went missing. Uh, he was from a South Asian family very recently yep. here, and they found him deceased in Delta. He had just wandered off. Happened to uh, somebody we both know well, I'll tell you, after mm. his, with his father. It can also include those who find themselves lost while traveling in a new city, uh, overdue in terms of his or her expected arrival or misunderstanding communication of a meeting point. So... Uh, they, those ones usually turn up. I would imagine so. Mental health issues. Some disappearances are due to undiagnosed or untreated mental health illnesses, such as bipolar disorder, mm-hmm. psychosis, or schizophrenia. Addictions may be a factor as well, like yep. we mentioned. Yep, yep. Unknown circumstances. I don't know why they would put this category in there, because that's obvious that that's a category. Yeah, yeah. Uh, In some cases, there's no clear reason that explains why the adult went missing. The explanation comes only after the person is located. Yeah. Right? Exactly. That's that's kind of on the nose. Foul play, suspicious circumstances. These are disappearances that are the result of kidnapping, homicide, domestic violence, human trafficking, or other criminal events. Hmm. It is important to note that only a small portion of missing person cases are due to foul play. Regardless of the reason for the disappearance, the trauma experienced by the family and friends can be tremendous. I think these are really good to go over. I'm glad you you put them in there. Um, It's good to also know that foul play is very, is a very, very small percentage. Well, it's, it just so happens that the Missing persons cases that will be covered on this show typically are ones that may or may not involve foul play. It's just, well, and it's the nature of media and everything yeah. it is those are the ones that are going to get the most attention. So to the public's knowledge, it can seem like, holy shit, this is like just rampant. But again, back to what we said, a hundred thousand people go missing every year Yeah, yeah. in Canada. That's terrifying. I didn't know that. No. I didn't know that was so, hard, so no. high. So they also have a page titled Quick Facts About Reporting a Missing Adult in Canada. Oh, good. Okay. It's, this is excellent information. Yeah. So it reads, usually a person's family and friends know the individual's routine well and are the first to recognize when irregular patterns are broken. In majority of cases, explanations are easily found. Maybe there's no reasonable explanation for the disappearance. Mm-hmm. However... When there are no explanations, you are concerned for the person's safety or well-being, you should contact the police to discuss the situation. The sooner the police are made aware of the disappearance, the sooner they are able to begin working on locating your loved one. I would imagine that one being difficult because you're going to always be like, oh, am I overreacting? Right. When speaking with police, it is extremely important to tell them why or how the situation is different from the person's Mm. normal routine. Mm. For example, is the missing person someone who calls daily and is suddenly unreachable for several days? Like Aaron and Aaron's trying to text her boyfriend, and I'm pretty sure that they were probably in contact every single day. And it sounded like they contacted each other quite heavily. And when he goes 
silent all of a sudden, that's going to be a concern to her. Absolutely. Has the person not returned after a wilderness trip? Be sure to explain how the situation is unusual. And next it talks about waiting period before contacting police. Guess what? What? There is no waiting period for filing a missing persons report in Canada. Oh. Having to wait 24 or 48 hours or any other time period is a myth. Well, that's really good to know. <laughs> this is why I'm putting this yeah, information Yeah, that is really here. good to know. Uh, who can report a missing adult? Although missing adults are usually reported to police by family members, you do not have to be a relative to file a missing person report. Interesting. Okay. A person can be reported missing by a friend, coworker, neighbor, employer, doctor, community worker, or anyone who knows the missing person's routine well enough to recognize when there's a change. Okay, that's what I was wondering about. Employee doesn't show up for work at the telecom where we used to work. What was the first thing we did? Call their house to say, are you okay? Yep, yep. And if they didn't answer, we called their family to let them know. Emergency contacts. Yeah, exactly. Where to file a report. A missing person's report should be filed with the police force responsible for the city slash area where the person disappeared from. Mm -hmm. So Melanie Alex today can call Edmonton Edmonton from her home in Moose Jaw to let them know, hey, this is what's going on. Other people are telling me he's not showing up for work. All these kind of things are going on. He's missing. It's mind-blowing to think that that wasn't the case. Yeah. There are situations where the missing person disappears from an area that is different from where the reporting person lives, e.g. city or province, Mm -hmm. like we mentioned, Mm -hmm. or far away geographically. If this applies in your situation, contact the police force in the area where the disappearance occurred. So she did exactly the right thing. she did. It may be possible to have your local police take the missing person's report and forward it to the police force in the area where the disappearance occurred. This is something to discuss when filing a report. I would rather deal with the people who are going to do the looking. You know what I mean? Yeah, I agree. I agree. If the investigation involves more than one police agency, it's a good practice to contact each of the police agencies involved to ensure all information has been passed along. Maybe he's camping in a place that outside of Edmonton that is patrolled by the RCMP and he is living in Edmonton, supposed to be back there. So you should be contacting both the RCMP and the Edmonton police. Really good point. Here's another thing that was interesting. It is not a crime for an adult to go missing. So saying, Oh, well that guy's missing. It's, I can't understand why someone would think that as a crime because I don't think I would. It's one of those things you don't really think about, but yeah, it makes sense. Yeah, It absolutely makes sense. It's but... not a crime for an adult to sever all contacts and voluntarily walk away from his or her life to start over elsewhere. I mean, dick move, sure. But... As a result, police have the difficult job balancing the missing adult's right to privacy mm-hmm. with finding out the reasons for the disappearance. Yeah, yeah. So they don't... I know of one particular case where police know more than... Mm-hmm. They're letting on. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, and I'm sure that happens more than we know. Mm-hmm. In some cases, the person no longer wishes to remain in contact with his or her loved ones. When this happens, police have to respect the missing person's decision. In most cases, the searching family is notified that the person has been located, but no further details are shared without the missing cur- person's consent. Yeah, which I think is 
the right thing to do. Mm-hmm. At least be able to let the family know he he or she is safe. Beyond that, right. we have nothing for you. But we can't pass on that he or she is it's, safe. Is safe, yeah. Which is, that's the right thing to do. Uh, yeah, yeah. You'd really have to hate somebody. Really, really have to hate the, somebody to not even want to let them know you're alive. Well... To know that we, you, Carol and I have a member uh, on her side of her, her family who were, we have no idea. But that's, he's, I, he's just, yeah. Yeah. But that, I, I think I know who, and I think I, I understand why that's understandable. But again, that's, that's a, a big level of dislike. Yeah. So you really, it, you, you know, you, yeah we're, yeah. we're kind of okay with it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I think that usually they, they will be, but. Right. We'll post a link to the in the show notes uh, about this website, but again, it's missingpersonsinformation.ca. And in regard to Dylan Koshman's disappearance, someone knows something. Absolutely. Even if it's just you know it in passing, maybe you saw something, uh, maybe you're not involved directly in what happened to Dylan, but you saw something. Mm-hmm. Why not get it off your chest? Just It's 12 years. Just yep. like give... Melanie and Tara and the rest of their family a break. Yep. And just, just even anonymously, somehow anonymously, just call and say, I know what happened and this is what went on. Yep. And and we know that these things can happen. Mm -hmm. We know, we know a situation where I believe it was like 12 years, 10 or 12 years. Years later. And somebody eventually came forward. Yep. And so, and this was a murder. And this I, is a murder situation. And, yeah, and I can assure you that individual, I, I absolutely one hundred percent assure you, that person who came forward, I personally know, mm. is glad they did, and feels relieved about it, and yeah. feels in a much better place, much happier. Yeah. If somebody out there has it gnawing at them. Yes. You know that somebody out there, maybe, maybe even you're listening to this podcast and yeah. it's just gnawing at you. Yeah. And it's just gnawing at you. There, and there is you a know what? reprieve to that. Yeah. That's not going to go away. Yeah. That's never going to go away, that feeling. You might be able to push it away with drugs, with all those kind of things. As long as you keep it to yourself, it's never going to go away. No. You can be better. Yeah. You you absolutely can. And I'm telling you from firsthand knowledge with somebody, that person feels so much better. Well, that's it for this week's show. Um, you'll see you'll be able to learn a little more on uh in our show notes on darkpoutine.com. And again, if you're a Patreon subscriber of five dollars and above, you'll be able to hear Melanie and Tara talk more about the case. So I guess it's time for voicemails. You can leave us one at one eight seven seven three two seven five seven eight six or one eight seven seven D A R K P T N. If your call stands out, you might hear it on the show. Um, this one looks like uh, it is a local one. So oh. let's let's hear what this guy has to say. Hey, Mike and Scott. Um, this is Steve here from boring old North Vancouver. I've been a follower of you guys probably since the beginning i just happened to get into podcasts from the same time that you guys were getting off the ground and i was just a huge huge true crime buff you guys uh one of the first ones you did was terry driver and it was actually my uncle 
that fingerprinted Terry Driver to identify him as the Abbotsford killer. He he uh, died probably about four months after that podcast. Um, but anyway, um, thanks so much for the work you guys do. I've enjoyed it since day one. I'm heavily biased towards the BC stuff. I, I can't get enough of that. But, you know, this COVID stuff has hit um, hit us pretty hard over here. So sometimes I'll just put in one of your podcasts I'll, and, and just get lost in some yard work and some gardening and just get lost for hours. So uh, you guys are just just awesome. I really, really enjoy listening to you guys. But, uh, yeah, keep up the good work. When this COVID stuff's over, I'll make sure to send you guys a couple bucks. And please make sure to shit in your respective hats. Thank you so much, gentlemen. Thanks, Steve. Oh, That's Steve, awesome. That was... My old stomping grounds. I wonder where in, where in North End Steve is because I was like Lower Lonsdale. Oh, I lived okay. in yeah. on Lower Lonsdale, all around Lower Lonsdale, probably yeah. like six different addresses. Probably. I like that. Five years. I like I like that area. Yeah, it's a really nice area. Yeah. But thank you so much for that, and uh, I'm glad we can bring you some kind of joy through all of this. Yeah. COVID while mess. you're doing your yard work. Yumber yard work. Your yumber yard work. Uh, okay. Looks like this person called twice. Uh, we'll go with the second one. Yeah, it's usually the. Okay. Um, here's one from somebody I don't know, but it looks like Richland, Washington, if our translation software it's is. It's never correct. right. Yeah. Well, well, let's see. Hey, Mike. Hey, Scott. My name is Lauren. Uh, I'm from Richland, Washington. I've been listening to your podcast for a really long time now, finally up to date on them. The first time I left you guys voicemails and the last time I was super drunk and it was really long and I realized if I want to hear myself on your podcast, I should probably keep it short. So just wanted to say that I really love you guys. I appreciate the humor, the facts, the stories. You guys are real as hell. Uh, I just finished listening to the Wesley Allen Dodd case and I didn't realize that he is actually from my area where you mentioned he went to Columbia High School, which is where I went to high school. It's now called Richland High School. And our mascot is a B-52 bomber, which is definitely hit or miss in our area. So, yeah, little fun fact from that case. Uh, I love you guys. You're awesome. And keep on doing whatever you're doing. Go shit in your hats. Thanks, Lauren. <laughs> Thanks, Lauren. Yeah, uh, yeah. You, I, you were probably correct. We probably looked at the length of your voicemail from before, and we just didn't play. <laughs> yeah, I mean, some of them. It's like, well, this is an episode. Yeah, <laughs> like, exactly. Just, some of them. Next are week's just episode will just be one voicemail. But that's interesting. She went to the same high school that Wesley yeah. Allen does. Got now that she knows. I'm sure there's a little creep factor going on. And I'm sure that you know, sometimes on at my high school, I know we had like Rhodes Scholars. Yeah. who had gone yeah. to our high school yeah. and things like that on the wall. Yeah. Somebody, people who had accomplished things you, from my high school. Uh, Donald Sutherland oh, went to my high school. Well, damn. Yeah. Um, so you, I don't think that they would uh, have no, Wesley I Allen dog. I don't think they have a wall of shame no. at that school. No, no, it's like this asshole. I mean, here. but if you think about it, like, that would be also very intriguing yeah. to know like what kind of D bags went to my school. Right. Like, wow. <laughs> probably a lot. I'm, I'm, I'm very curious about that now. Well, this douchebag went to this douche. I'm pointing to myself. Oh, yeah, yeah. Went to my high school, so so that you could go on your wall of shame. <laughs> People are aware. 
<laughs> people are all aware that the wall of shame was like very out and you'll be at the top. Front. You'll yeah. be at the top. You'll have like, you, you're like the, the king of the, 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 the king of shame. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, here's, here's another, it looks like there's only really three this week. Whoa. So. Interesting. Yeah, yeah. I guess people yeah. haven't just don't want to talk to us. That's okay. It happens. It happens. That's okay. Yeah. We, we get it. Mm-hmm. Hi, Mike and Scott. It's, uh, Cass calling from Ottawa. I was on the Okapoko episode. You played my voicemail then, and I am just pushing my luck apparently. Um, I am calling cause I just listened to your episode on, uh, Nathan Cirilla, Corporal Cirilla. And, um, it was weird because I was in my second year of university when this happened, and I distinctly remember how it felt um, sitting in lockdown. I went at U Ottawa at the time, and it's right downtown, like maybe a five-minute walk maximum from the War Memorial and Parliament buildings and everything like that, and just sitting and waiting for any sort of news and hearing things like, oh, they heard something in the Rideau Center, and like... Um, all this sort of stuff going on, and it was kind of weird. So um, thanks for covering that again and um, getting some more closure on that situation. And also thank you for not mentioning that asshole's name because I haven't learned it to this day, and I don't intend to anytime soon. So thanks. Have a good one. Yeah, and I'm sorry you had to go through that. That would have been a pretty terrifying time. Ottawa, I found when I was there, the everything was smaller than I thought it was. I thought... Oh. I thought I was going to see these gargantuan uh, parliament. It's yeah, big. That's what I'm envisioning. But I, everything just felt smaller. Oh. I was. It's not. It's not unimpressive. Mm-hmm. It's a beautiful building. The mm-hmm. buildings are quite beautiful and ornate, and there's lots to see. Yeah. But I was struck by the that it felt a lot smaller than I thought. Interesting. It was be. Yeah, I have this vision of it being like. Uh, it's like movie stars. You 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 think they're going to be this bigger than life thing when you meet them, and they're just Tom Cruise. I'm sure at the crime con, people were like, "Oh, these guys are much shorter than I thought." A couple of people actually said that. Yeah, <laughs> I'm, I'm not surprised. But uh, thank you so much. Um, yeah, yeah, very much. Very many thanks. Thank you. And with was it your was your name Cash? I think that's what it sounded like. Yeah, I couldn't. If, quite it, make if your it name's like Kath or Cash, if your name's Cash, what a dope name. I think it was cash. You may, oh, your, if your middle name is money, cash money, cash, Woo! cash money, isn't that a uh, what was that? What's that again? Well, it was a it's a hip hop, you know. Hip-hop no, no, expression. like there was a like a uh, a radio commercial. Oh God, I don't remember. Yeah, radio, huh? You remember those radio down on the radio? Remember those? Should I talk like a radio guy for the rest of this one? No, I'm not going to do oh, that. Oh, your to poor throat. Oh my gosh! I almost killed myself <laughs> last yeah, week. Yeah, don't do that. It was not good. Oh, let's let's get on to Patreon. Let's do it. Okay, let's see who do we have this week. That's a great question. Yeah, it is a great question. So first up, we have Shane. Shane, <laughs> just Hi, Shane. Shane. Hi, that's all we need. Yeah, there's only good. Thankfully, there's only one Shane in the world. Okay, so Shane. Yep, is from. Uh. Oh, oh, Montevideo, Uruguay. Montevideo? Yeah. There's an actual place called Montevideo? Yeah. It's the capital city, I'll have you know. Montevideo. Yeah. Wow, that's weird. Yeah, I yeah. didn't know that that was the capital of Uruguay. And most people don't. I happen to. 
Okay, I so to, yeah. what does he do in Montevideo? VHS repair. Oh, so not very busy. No, no. no. Well, actually, in Montevideo... He's the only VHS repairman. They they still don't have digital technology. Whoa. They don't have DVD, Blu-ray, none of those things. Come on, man. No, no, true fact, true fact, yeah. I think you're full of nonsense. No, 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 I, I speak the truth. It's all I speak. It's all I speak. <laughs> oh, goodness Montevideo gracious. is how Montevideo. they say Montevideo. Yeah. Next, we have Cindy Lee McNeil, mm-hmm. and she's from North Sydney, Nova Scotia. Oh, North Sydney. Uh, I'm wondering if she's related to Rita McNeil. Holy shit. She could be. She very well could There's be. There's a lot of McNeils, though, on uh, on Cape Breton. Don't, don't, don't harsh my buzz. Okay. But what does Cindy Lee McNeil do in North Sydney? Oh, she makes uh, Christmas tree ornaments. Oh, that sounds nice. It's really lovely. Hand, handcrafted. Wow. Guess how much an ornament? $3. $752. Good golly. Yeah. She puts a lot into these ornaments. How many does she sell a year? Like 7000 So she's really wealthy. So oh she should have given us way more. Oh, she's loaded. <laughs> you, she, you know what they say. What are you doing cheaping out, Cindy Lee? You know that expression, making that ornament money. She's, uh, yeah. she's making that ornament money. Making that bank ornament money. Cash money. <laughs> Thank you, Cindy Lee McNeil. Yeah. Next, we have Carly Risenhoover Peterson, or oh. is it Risenhoover? Which do you think it is? I think it's Risenhoover. Okay. She's from Kettering, Ohio. Oh. What does Carly do in Ohio? Ohio, you would think potato farmer, but no. I wouldn't think that. No, actually. she's bucking the trends of Ohioites. And she's Ohioans? Ohioites. Okay. It's the new, it's what they now say. It's the Scott. It's, it's yeah. The, it's what they say now. Uh, that's not what what she does at all. She operates a front end loader. Oh, yeah, which is really fun. I did that once and ran heavy equipment. Yep, uh, it's actually really quite a fun thing to do. Um, she sometimes uh, when not working, like so during lunch hour, her and the other front lo- uh, front end loader race. They race in, I in the parking lot. Sometimes they just go right over the cars. Loader race. Her co her co-workers are very not jazzed about. We used to call a guy in school loader because he walked like he had a shit in his pants. <laughs> Jesus. Well, I'm sure he loves that. No, he did not. <laughs> no. Oh. Him and his brother used to, you know, fight with me and my I, friends. Yeah, all the time. I can imagine so. And I threw his brother in the blueberry bushes one time and got blueberries all over his well, pants. Wasn't it enough you called him loader? No, that was his brother. Oh, you threw his brother. Yeah. Into, wow. Anyway. Lots of love from that family. No. So thank you, Carly, and your front-end loader. Yep. Next, we have Phoebe Cassie. Oh. And she's from Cronulla in Australia. Yeah. I guarantee she is a nice lady. I don't know why, but I really love the name Phoebe. Phoebe, Phoebe is a nice name. It's a great if you had name. another daughter, I guarantee you'd name them Phoebe. It's quite probable. Yeah. 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 Or even a boy. Named Phoebe. Yeah. Yeah, why well, not? Well, it could be a cat. We could give birth to a cat. I'd name it Phoebe. I, our... Uh, a lady who used to live downstairs from us and listens to this show had yeah. a cat named Phoebe. It's a great name. Yeah. It's a great name. So what does Phoebe do in Australia? Florist. But She's a, a but, florist. But a weed florist. She she makes, uh, what do they call it when you like a bushel of flowers? When you like a, 
uh, an arrangement. Arrangement. She makes arrangements with weeds, like dandelions. Oh, I thought you were going to say weed. No. Well, maybe. I don't, I'm not here to judge. <laughs> right. I'm not here to judge. But she, you know, like uh, brambles she'll put in there. And, wow. And dandelions and whatever kind of weeds they have in, in Australia. Fair enough. Yeah. It's, 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 uh, she's starting to thing. It's going to be a trend all over the place. There we go. And next, oh my goodness, we have Faye Wicks, and she is from London. Oh, in Great Britain. Oh, the real London, the real as opposed London. to the Canadian <laughs> not, London, not Canada's London, not Canada London, where Matthew's from. Fake London. I always, you know, I want to go to London so bad. Same. I was here. in Heathrow Airport. That's as close oh. as I've ever been. Well, I mean, but I was on my way to France. Technically, you stepped foot. Yeah. So, but yeah, not outside the airport. No. Though. I would. Yeah, I really, really want to go to London. Mm-hmm. I don't know why, but I do. I want to see. I love Europe and yeah. all the history there. In Scotland. I want to go to Scotland. Although I guess because of Brexit, the UK is not a part of the uh, European no, Union. That's right. So we better be careful. That's, is it or isn't it? That, I, like, I'm what, not quite, wait, what is the state? I don't of that? quite understand. Yeah, it. I, don't, I don't. I don't know. think a lot of people there do. No. So, uh, what does Faye do? In in Great Britain, did we say? Oh, I don't think we did. No, no, no. Uh, Faye operates um, uh, snowplows. Another heavy equipment operator. Yeah, That's two. yeah, yeah, yeah. Your creativity is lagging. No, no. It's just it's this this is the modern age. Okay. More women uh, operating uh, heavy ma- machinery. Okay. Yeah, snow. She she runs a snowplow. There you go. Yeah, they don't. I don't think there's a lot of snow. There isn't. Mm. There, there isn't. It's a fog plow. But she plows <laughs> the fog, it's a, which it's is also lesson. another myth. Yeah. There's not a lot of fog in London. So what? What her machine like? She's created work because there's also she's attached a snow blower to the front. Oh, so she the, creates the snow yeah. so she has snow to plow. Yeah, exactly. Oh, it's oh, very, very her. ingenious. That's that's smart. Yeah. Thanks, Faye. Next we have uh, Jen. And her last name, I'm going to slaughter. It's probably Talkterman. Yeah, that's what it seems like. I tried. And she's from Brunswick, Maine. 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 Not New Brunswick. Uh, This is more old So I wonder if she watches WLBZ, Bangor, Maine. That's the NBC affiliate in Bangor, Maine. And there used to be a man there. His name was Eddie Driscoll. And he did the community announcements. And Eddie Driscoll said... Send in your community announcements and we'll put it on for you. <laughs> I like Eddie Driscoll. Oh yeah! Wow! And he also was the announcer for the movie of the movie of the week, oh. like the movie afternoon movie. Oh yeah! This afternoon we've got uh, this here movie. I want him to narrate my life. Oh, I love the main accent, and I can do it well because I'm. Mm-hmm. Uh, put it on for you we, because I heard it so much yeah, yeah. when we lived Driscoll. nearby. We traveled to Maine. But Driscoll. What does Jen do in Brunswick, Maine? Jen. Uh, Spell checker for Stephen King? Nope. Okay. No. We, unless she's changed careers. Uh, she owns. She, you were going to say she owns something. A spell check <laughs> company. Oh, fuck. No, she owns a, um, oh, now you've got me all rattled. She owns a, um, a, no, she owns a taco store. Stand. Stand. Okay. Yeah. And there was an S and a T. I got, I got confused. <laughs> she owns a taco she stand. She owns a taco stand. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. They're delicious. Mm-hmm. Sometimes people. Is that lobster? 
in the tacos. That, that's the that's the kick. I yeah. love a lobster. That's tacos, the specialty babe. there. That's why. Now yeah, that. Yeah, that's what you know. That's what she's known for. Her famous. She's coming to the lobster. Uh, taco stand. Come down to the lobster taco stand <laughs> and Driscoll. we'll shove it into you. Eddie Driscoll's gonna he's gonna do that as a special yeah, announcement. I think Eddie Driscoll is dead. Oh, well. I'm pretty. He was an old dude in the that's, '70s, so well, I'm pretty certain that Eddie Driscoll is uh, well, is somewhere pushing up the mm-hmm. daisies. Well, that's just sad. But uh, thank you, Jen. Next we have Joanna Malinowski, yep. and she's from North Arlington, New Jersey. Mm-hmm. Yep, she's a casino operator. Oh, yeah, in New Jersey. Oh, so like Atlantic City kind of thing. Yeah. yeah. Oh wow. On the boardwalk there. Yeah. Yep. She she runs the whole kit and caboodle. Oh wow. Yeah, that's a stressful job. I mean, think about all the people she has to have off. Right. You know, like yeah, yeah. It's 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 you know you people don't make a lot of profit. No. Going to casinos, and so you're gonna get a lot of angry people. Yeah. But at, in her role, she just like gets other people. Just go deal with this shit. Fair enough. Go off him. <laughs> well, thanks, Joanna Melanowski. Yeah, thank you very much. They're in. Thank you for New Jersey. New Jersey. She's in Jersey. Thank you for handling all those gamblers. Next, we have Lisa McKinnon mm-hmm. from Lower Nicola, British Columbia. Oh, cool! Not the Upper Nicola. No. No. You don't want to confuse the two. And what does Lisa do in Lower Nicola, British Columbia? Uh, she is a copper miner. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I think I heard that. And, yeah, uh, yeah, you probably did. It was well reported. Yeah. And uh, she makes something with the copper, though. Yep, she does. What are it? What is it again? Copper shovels. Fair enough. Yeah. Oh, yeah. They, they tend to bend. And I know. I know. Very... They're more like, uh, because they look a bit more rustic because they're copper. So they're more decorative. Right. Like if you wanted it to look like you have yeah. shoveling to do, you'd buy one of those. But if you're not, I guess do any shoveling. There you go. Yeah. Well, there you go. Fair enough. Thank you, Lisa. Thank you. Thank you. Next, we have Jasemi Nickel. Jasemi Nickel. Yeah. Yes, that rings a bell. Yeah, she's from Edmonton, Alberta. That's right. Yeah, yeah. and yeah. Uh, it's ironic we have somebody from the place that we're doing. I know often coincidence. So we talk about Edmonton, and then somebody from Edmonton is a patron. Isn't that funny how that works? I don't think it's a coincidence. Yeah, I think it is entirely a coincidence. <laughs> Pish posh, mishmash. So, what does Jessemi do? I'm sure I'm pronouncing that incorrectly. Just Amy or... Currently very busy. Very, very busy. Zamboni operator for the Edmonton Oilers. Oh, so she's the hub city. Yep. yep. Wow. Oh, my God. You haven't seen uh, this much Zamboni. Is she going to be in goal for the Maple Leafs during the end of the playoffs? It's quite possible. She may get called up. It's quite possible. The the amount of Zamboni work happening is exhausting. It's got to be. Yeah, she's got three backup Zambonis just in case. Oh, fair enough. Yeah, you don't want to have unzamboni dice. There you go. It's true. Now on to donut money. Mm-hmm. And first up, we have somebody who went to tea with us. Oh. When we went to tea over in Vancouver, and mm-hmm. that's Juliana Ambrosini. Oh, fantastic. Yeah, she mentioned that she was going to give us some donut money yeah. this week. So thank you, Juliana. We know Juliana. We have shaken hands with yes, and had, given hugs had to. Had tea with, in yeah. fact. 
had tea with. Yeah, you only do that with close friends. That's right. Yep. yep. What, what? But hmm. what does Juliana do for work? I know she's from New West, I believe. Yes. So yes. I, what does she do in New Westminster? Ah, a page gluer. Well, she glues pages. Yeah, so I don't know if people are aware Just how books frustrate. get made. No, no, silly. Like I, you glue the page 101 to 103 together. No, she has, she and, glues them to the binding so that you can oh. read them. How, so you never People don't think about that. How does this page I get into the, the book? does that now. Well, they are, it's She's moving a, in she, that it's direction. It's artisanal. Yes, exactly. The artisanal page She's trying gluing. to keep that, that genre alive. Oh, fair enough. And uh, you don't make, you, you don't... You don't finish a lot of books. No. You don't finish a lot of books, but, you know. Like one page at a time? One page, yeah, that sing, is, singularly. Oh, my yeah. goodness. Well, you don't want to have multiple glued together, as you were mentioning, because that's just frustrating. Mm-hmm. So you've got to be, and then, like, you have to place it and then let it dry. There you go. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you, Juliana. Thank you. Yeah, very much. Thank and you. Uh, hopefully we'll get to go out for tea when this COVID nonsense is over yeah. again. Jesus, please. Adela Reed. Another familiar name. Yeah. I don't know where Adela's from, though, Scott. You don't? Nope. Uh, I do. Adela's from... Um, oh, I see it's the... A little, I smell the brain. It's it's from a, a little town in, called Beijing. Oh, that little town. <laughs> yes. Yes. Oh, in... in China, of course. Okay, of course. Yeah. Not, Just not, checking. Not the Beijing in uh, Idaho. Yeah, Beijing, Idaho. Yeah, not that one. <laughs> Wouldn't that be funny? If <laughs> it would be. No, no. It's from the, the yeah, the China, Beijing. Yeah. So what does Adela Reed do in Beijing, China? She works for TikTok. Well, there you go. Yeah. Is she a ticker or a talker? I'm not sure how More of a talker. Works. More of a talker. Gotcha. More of a talker. Gotcha. Uh, there's some concern, though, because Trump literally, before he came here, just announced that he's going to be banning TikTok in, in, in the U.S. You know what else, what else should be banned from the internet? Donald Trump. Yeah. He really? should definitely be banned. But so there's a lot of controversies. They're like, yeah, the U.S. is a big market of ours. How are we going to have TikTok? Well, yeah, that's part of what she's there to fix. Yeah. That's part of the talking. Yeah. So, yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's a lot of turmoil in the TikTok world. Well, thank you so much, Adela. Yeah, thank you for doing what you do. <laughs> thank you to all our patrons and Donut Money donors, past and present, for your help to keep us doing what we do. Yeah. If you want to support the show... You can do so uh, by subscribing to Patreon at patreon.com slash darkpoutine. Or for one-time donation, you can send us donut money via PayPal at our email address, darkpoutinepodcast.gmail.com. If you don't already, please, please subscribe to the show. Please. It'd mean a lot to us. You can easily find us on iTunes Podcast, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spotify, or wherever you get your on-demand audio. Check out our website, darkpoutine.com, for show notes and other cool stuff. Give us a like or follow on Facebook and Instagram. Most importantly, tell your friends about us. Word of mouth is a powerful thing. And until we return, don't forget to be a good egg and not a bad apple. Bye-bye, everybody. I need some air conditioning. Jesus Christ. Bye. <laughs>